Hello everyone. Today I'd like to tell you about Arcadia Energy. Arcadia is a free platform working to make clean, renewable energy more widely available and affordable in the United States. For the most part, Arcadia is not an energy provider themselves. They do operate some solar and wind farms across the US, but they won't be coming to your house and installing solar panels and a windmill. Instead, if you sign up with Arcadia, some of the renewable energy certificates they earn are put in your name to demonstrate an increased market for renewables in your area, even if you don't actually have access to renewable generators. This is a very important step toward demonstrating the financial viability of renewable energy. More renewable energy certificates means more investment and subsidies for renewable power. The best part of this is, you can do it for free. If you sign up with Arcadia and link your pre-existing electricity bill to the Arcadia system, from then on, you will pay Arcadia each month and Arcadia will pay your utility company. All the while, you're supporting renewable energy. Your bill won't change, the payment is automatic and always on time. In some areas, they can even help you connect with an energy provider that charges less than your current bill. If this sounds like something you want to check out, I really encourage you to do so. I've been nothing but pleased with my experience. You can set up your completely free account in just a few minutes by following the link in the episode description or going to arcadia.historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's A-R-C-A-D-I-A dot historyofpersiapodcast.com to support renewable energy at no additional cost. Hello everyone, I'm Trevor Cully. Welcome to a special episode of the History of Persia podcast and the history of ancient Greece. As history of Persia rapidly approaches Xerxes' invasion of the Greek mainland and arguably a sort of beginning for 150 years of on and off conflict in the Aegean, I wanted to get an expert opinion on the so-called Yona. So please enjoy this detailed conversation between myself and the excellent Ryan Stitt. So really what I want this to be is a conversation about Greece, sort of as it relates to Persia, but also what it is on its own because it's going to be such a massive cog in the machine of the Persian Empire for the mm -hmm. rest of my series. Uh, mm -hmm. But I feel like you're probably much better equipped to explain what it really means to be Greek than I am, given that you are the host <laughs> of the history of ancient Greece. Uh, but I think first, could you introduce yourself for everyone? I know a lot of my listeners overlap with your listeners, but I'm sure there are some people who haven't heard quite yet. Uh, yeah, my name's uh, Ryan Stitt. I am the creator host of the History of Ancient Greece podcast um, on Twitter at Greek History Pod. Um, I know that's confusing for some. Uh, Greece History Pod was already taken, so... <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, which it's not anymore. So I was thinking about switching back, but that's a digression. Anyway, um, but yeah, I uh, I cover the history of ancient Greece from, I mean, technically from the, the Paleolithic, Neolithic period 
to the plan is to Actium, but I mean, I only spent one 20 minute episode on the, the stone age. So, I mean, I technically covered it, but, uh, um, then we did a few episodes on the bronze age. Um, currently right now we are in the classical period, um, the Peloponnesian war and the Persians are starting to get involved in the, in the war. So, uh, there's some overlapping there. Um, I, I, I do chrono- I do kind of what Trevor does. Um, he seems to have similar methodology. I do chronological, but also uh, thematical uh, when it's appropriate. So since it's the classical period and we have a lot more sources, um, I've been, I did like a whole cultural tour of classical period. So I've been in the classical period for like two years now. Specifically, I've been in the fifth century for like two years now. I'll be in the classical period for a while if you consider the classical period up to Alexander and the conquest of the Achaemenid Empire, which we do. <laughs> so I'll be in the classical period for a couple more years. <laughs> oh, great. The Yeah, the fifth century is kind of a monster topic to cover in mm-hmm. Greek history, I think. Well, um, we have Thucydides and Herodotus, the two the, the earliest Greek historians and the two main ones. I mean, Xenophon comes in later, he's still technically fifth century, but covers only a part of it. So like you, for the first time you have these like dedicated histories to a a, a century, though, obviously Herodotus, as you know, goes back a little bit further beyond that uh, or earlier than that to cover the rise of the Persians, as I'm sure you're, you're well aware of Herodotus, his listeners. (laughs) To quote myself, as Herodotus says, insert (laughs) most of the podcast. Um, (laughs) So yeah, the first thing I'd really like you to maybe explain to me and my listeners, uh, because obviously I've got my BA in classics and that's mm-hmm. what I'm in grad school for, but uh, you've engaged with it much more in depth than I have, I think, is what does it mean to be Greek in the context of the early to middle fifth century, I guess, is about where we're going to be placing this episode. So this is a tricky question. Uh, I, I took a graduate course on, on the Greeks and like the entire first week was what was Greek identity. Um, it's, it's a tricky to answer. Like uh, everyone always points to Herodotus, I think in like book six or something. Um, don't quote me, but he, he, whenever the, the Greeks are coming together, it might be book five, but whenever the Greeks are coming together uh, in their uh, council, but as the Persians are invading, he uses the, this Greek word called Hellenikon, uh, which is roughly translated as like Greekness. And he says something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, uh, it's common customs, common uh, language, common religion, uh, common values in the Greeks. Um, but that's the first time we see that word. And so that's in the classical period. But you see... And it comes about because the Greeks aren't what we just kind of think about as modern Greece. Actually, and Greece is actually, Greek is actually a, that's not what they called themselves. They were Hellenes, people that came from Helen, uh, not the the woman who started the Trojan War, <laughs> but uh, like the, the ancestral uh, son of Ion or uh, ancestral progenitor. Um, one that had the the tribes that were their uh, sons like Ion and Doris and all of them, um, but they uh, and they called their um, country Hellas. Uh, it, w- Greeks would come later from the Romans and whatnot, but it, they weren't like what we would think of as like modern Greek. There was no like geographical boundaries. They spread throughout the Mediterranean into the Black Sea region when they colonized. 
Um, so it, it's this, it's this very controversial, like, what does it mean to be Greek? Who were, re- who, uh, what was, was Greek, was Greek identity that important to them? Um, more, it, 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 Greek identity for them was, so you get the word like barbarian, non-Greeks, barbaroi, people who spoke, uh, non, had this barbarous diction they didn't speak greek barbaroi shows up in homer he's talking about these carrions who uh sounded like they were just speaking bar 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 and that's where you kind of get the word um so it it comes to delineate between greek speakers and non-greek speakers but it's the identity is it's tricky it's because most most of the greeks were not they were not unified like politically at least until like the macedonian period um, and they only really came kind of quasi unified when they like when they had external threats. And even then, like what the Persians invaded, which you'll get to in your podcast eventually, it was only like not even. I'm probably actually overstating it, but I don't even think it was like 30 percent of the Greeks uh, actually uh, came together. Some of them were neutral. Most of them, a good chunk of them, actually joined the Persian side. Um, uh some yeah and most were neutral though um it was just so it wasn't like a greek alliance it was like a small amount of greek alliance but what meant and i say all that but it was like what meant the most to them was more of their polis identity more than a greek identity um so you were an athenian or you're a spartan or you're a theban that meant more than this overall overall arching notion of i'm a greek there was no really no sense of that um, they, that only came about like later when they're when they're trying to be like this is what it means to be Greek civilized versus these uncivilized barbarians and you start seeing these statuary when you start portraying like the Amazonomachy the Persian Wars the the uh, like the the exploits and myth um, that that sort of thing but most m- most important it was your polis identity more than anything that answers your question <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the really important thing to try and get across to people when we're discussing ancient Greece is that we're really discussing ancient Athens and ancient Sparta and ancient Thebes and mm-hmm. then a, a collection of smaller players in and around that mixture. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to think about it, it's kind of a lot like like the, like the colonies in America. There was like, in the early time, it was like, I'm a, I'm a Pennsylvanian or I'm a New Yorker or I'm a you know virginian um before like they kind of came together um it was kind of like this superseding identity more than like oh we're colon or we're we're, like british colonists they didn't really have that sort of identity until you know the revolution (laughs) um so it was kind of like this this their 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 polis identity and then even further it was like their familial their familial tribal identity superseded more than this national greek identity which only really was useful for propaganda when it suited them you would see later with like demosthenes and some of the the orators who were like oh philip this barbarian on that uh macedonian barbarian it's like there was like p- p- propaganda that was used it really this idea of greekness was only suited by um you know like when, when it suited them um but but they also used it as like a way to promote uh, common blood and common language and common sense of gods, and you see this at a lot of a number of pan Hellenic sanctuaries. So even though like being Greek wasn't 
what was the most important in their lives, it still held significance. You, it was like um, being Greek, it still held significance, but on a far less politically and cultural uh, uh, basis than like your everyday, like I'm a th- an Athenian or a Corinthian, for example. Yeah, um, great. The one thing you mentioned that I think is a good segue into my podcast from yours is that uh, this idea of Hellenes is really only brought up by Herodotus for the first time in the context of the wars with Persia. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so do you think that the existential exterior threat of a large organized other group helped or was the reason that they formulated an identity like that? Or was that something that was already around, just never needed to be addressed because there was never anything to contrast it with? Well, kind of. So we have to be careful, too, because Herodotus uses that word, and just and it's kind of his telling of it. So we don't really know if that was, like, how they viewed it or it was his analysis of it. You know what I mean? Um, like, was that how, like, did the Greeks at that council think of themselves coming together in a greek uh like a quote-unquote greek uh union of you know like 30 percent of them uh, against the these non-greek invaders or was this just like herodotus looking at it and saying that this is kind of and then using that word to like it was these this was a greek first persian type of uh, affair um but to also answer your question they um <laughs> so it wasn't even like it wasn't even like when this happened though like the greeks were very like even the one even like the 30 percent, they were gung-ho about it you like for example the spartans they were had to like get their feet dragged <laughs> to even come up and defend uh, out of the peloponnese uh, like the central and athens area it wasn't until athens it wasn't until the persians were almost on their doorsteps uh and the athenians uh left the Athenians decided to said if, uh, if Sparta wouldn't come and help them, they were just going to get in their ships and sail away to Italy. Um, that Sparta really just like, fine, we're going to come, we'll come and fight. Um, and even, and you even see with like the 300, they, they weren't very gung ho in, in, uh, in, in defending Thermopylae. Um, and they used some sort of religious, um, uh, ploy, I would say, um, let's say I'm celebrating the Carnia. It's, it's, I can't fight during this month. But like, you know, in other in other circumstances, like the Greeks were completely able to and willing to uh, look past these stipulations. For example, technically, while they're fighting that summer, the, the Olympic truce was in effect. But the other but but, you know, at, at, at some points they were able to kind of just, you know, slide that aside and say, OK, this this is necessary to ignore the uh, the Olympic truce because it's an existential threat. Whereas the Spartans are just, it's an excuse. And you see it in time and time again in the, uh, in the sources, like the Spartans, when they don't want to do something, they, they tend to hide behind this uh, religious facade. Uh, so they don't look bad geopolitically, but like they, the Greeks, even when they came together in this council, it wasn't this united front that they came together kicking and screaming. And some of them took the Persian threat serious. Some of them, even in, um, 
we're, we're pro Persian in a sense. Uh, you see the entire buildup between Marathon and and the second invasion, where like a lot of a string of ostracisms in Athens, which you know the theories, uh, many of the theories are, uh, some of them it was their continuously ongoing fight internally uh, as to how they should handle Persia. At some point, people were pro tyrant, pro uh, tyrant hippie, uh, yeah, hippies, pro. Uh, pro-Persian which in their mind kind of fused together and at other points they were anti so it was it's this very very difficult situation isn't very straightforward where you're like oh Persians come in everybody gets together and we're gonna fight them off it was some people some they were they were heavily disunited and you see similar you see similar when when Philip's coming down to a century later uh it took them forever I'm gonna say it didn't it didn't take them forever to take him as a threat but it's it, it did kind of take them forever uh, to get in lockstep and at that point it was too late but you know in the fifth century they were much stronger than they were in the fourth century so they were able to push the persians out um at least i mean they're on their periphery too as you know so it's like yeah if, if the persians really wanted to conquer greece they could have sent wave after waves and eventually ta- uh, taken them yeah with, it- the, with the manpower that they had <laughs> It ultimately ends up being like they did send a couple of waves. Like they, there are two attempts, and then you know, there's sort of you can see a third attempt because Mardonius stuck around to try and hold on to Attica after <laughs> the Battle of Salome. But you know, eventually they were like, okay, these people aren't worth it, just yeah. because. And I think it's because Greece doesn't have a ton to offer a massive empire like Persia that. Ionia by itself and uh, the Levantine coast wasn't already offering. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, the Persian wars in Greece and uh, Herodotus's account for them are kind of the foundation of everything that I'm able to talk about as the history of Persia up to a certain point. Uh, so they're very clearly these formative events for everyone. And at least in some sources that I've read, uh, these wars, or especially Xerxes' invasion at least, is treated as the turning point between archaic and classical. Uh, I don't know if that's the definition you've used for your podcast and your research, but mm-hmm. uh, like clearly these mark a difference in Greek politics and culture before the wars and Greek politics and culture after they kick the Persians out. Uh, So could you maybe describe a little bit of how the shift from the archaic to classical uh, Greek world occurs around that time and what it has to do with the Persian Wars and maybe what it doesn't have to do with the Persian Wars? Yeah, um, so the archaic uh, classical divide it's a historiographical tradition. Um, like, you know, the Greeks in 479, I mean, they, they marked the quote unquote liberation of Greece at the end of a two decade long struggle. I guess you can consider 499 um, when the Athenians went over there um, to 479. It's kind of just one war. That's just, you know, with a little bit of interlude in between um, as the Persians, pressed for uh, they had to deal 
I don't know. I don't know where you're at in the podcast at the moment, but uh, they had to. They had a couple of rebellions. One in Egypt, one in Babylon. After Darius died, and then you know, then they're shipwrecked around uh, Mount Athos. So they had. Uh, they were busy during that decade <laughs> um, after the after marathon, um, but it's kind of one continuous buildup. Um, though some Greeks didn't think that the Persians were that much of a threat, as we mentioned before, and it took a Themistocles like grabbing them a hold and saying, "We need to get these. We need to use this money towards ships. We need to take this take this threat seriously." Um, Themistocles is one of my favorite characters in Greek history, by the way, but we won't go down that digression. Uh, <laughs> um, but this divide is definitely between archaic classical is definitely a scholarly historiographical tradition like a greek in 479 i mean okay yeah they they knew that they de- defeated the persians but did but you can question did they did they think of themselves as entering this brand new period of of radical change um uh different from the last century like the the people on the ground did, did they look at it like that it's kind of like that, that question did, did like the people in the middle ages think of themselves as the middle ages that sort of thing like like how did uh how did the people think um but uh but it was a formative event because you see athens and this comes back to what i mentioned with themistocles athens comes comes out of it with this newfound uh naval ability that they didn't have prior to the war. Um, like, I mean, they had it, but they didn't have it quite at that level. Um, and, and they also took control of this uh, Greek defense. Like even after, even after Plataea and Mycale, there were still skirmishes with the Persians weren't out of the Aegean. They like, they, they were still fight. They were still trying to, even though, as you mentioned earlier, they, they didn't send another wave as an invasion because it kind of wasn't worth it. It was still worth it to keep control of the, the sea lines of trade and the, and, and they always wanted to get Ionia back, the Ionian city-states. And we'll see that they do uh, uh, later. Uh, um, so you, there's, there's still skirmishes. It wasn't really until four, I, I believe it's 467 at the battle of Eurymedon when Cayman defeats um, the fleet uh, double victory on land and navy, and the Greeks really gained complete control of the area uh, in the eastern Aegean, and you know, basically from Cyprus west uh, by the Greeks. I mean, the Athenians, of course, um, and they maintain control into the Hellespont and the Black Sea regions. Um, and then you'll have uh, so. So there's still skirmishes. It's a long way of me saying like the war is not completely over. And the Athenians use that, um, that, that fact as they create this thing called the Delian League, which eventually becomes a, a slush fund for the Athenians and turns into the Athenian Empire as more and more city-states stop contributing uh, def- uh, ships um, to the, the defense. Um, the, the Athenians, uh, they contribute money. So the Athenians are getting money to go fight the Persians on sea or uh, like every year doing the, you know, naval raids and, or, you know, just uh, reconnaissance missions. So not only are the Athenians getting money, but they're getting the experience. And then, but the, and the people that are fighting on the, on these naval battles or naval skirmishes or how, whatever phraseology you want to use, um, they're from the lower classes, the Thetes. So that eventually turns into they want more political power. Um, so you start seeing a shift from a from a 
from a hoplite-based democracy, um, which is kind of like a middle-class democracy to a more radical democracy with, uh, with, with uh, the ascendancy of Ephialtes and Pericles. The, the Persian Wars springboard uh, Athenians to the fore. So you and so in our minds, classical our classical period is classical Athens because because of our sources, the Athenian ascendancy, uh, ascendancy and so forth. There may not be such a, a stark divide between the, the say the the sixth century and the fifth century for some other city states, um, but in our minds, in the historiographical tradition uh, for Athens, you see this huge huge switch because I mean before right before the Persian Wars, five hundred eight. To, so it's nine years before the Ionian Revolt is when their democracy formed. So they're still in their infancy and they fended off this, the Persians twice at Marathon and uh, at Salamis and it spring bolts them, their confidence and they just, they, they grab a hold of, they grab the bull by the horn, so to speak, and, you know, run with it and turn it into this imperial power that eventually gets, gets into the Peloponnesian War. Um, by the, at the end of the century with the Spartans. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think I was like, oh, I think I went around in a circle to get back to your question. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think I'm very, I'm very, I'm very Herodotus in my methods, apparently. I'm very digressive and I get back to the point eventually. <laughs> I think that with some of the stuff, that's exactly what you have to do though, because it's not like this is a simple question that I asked you mm -hmm. uh, trying to fit in modern historiographical divides into historical reality is always a complicated issue. Like you said, just look mm -hmm. at anybody who talks about the Middle Ages. Um, now, yeah, for your listeners, archaic means old. And so old, the classical, so you can definitely look at the bias there. Looking back on classical period as like the zenith of uh, ancient Greece, which, I mean, sure, there's a lot of great things, but there's a lot of great things, foundational period in the archaic, and there's quite a bit of accomplishment in the Hellenistic period too. So it's definitely this historical gra graphical bias. It's like, okay, this is the zenith. So then it, the old period, and yeah, beforehand. So you look at it that way. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for, well, of course, historians prefer the classical period. It's when they started writing all of the history down. So <laughs> So we're obviously extremely biased towards the sources we're actually able to get any use out of. Now, you mentioned that uh, in your podcast, you're getting into the Peloponnesian War and the Persians are about to get involved. And I think that's a good thing to touch on too, is that uh, when I get this episode into my podcast feed, it's going to probably be right before we start Xerxes' invasion of Greece. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, uh, and even some very popular books, that's kind of the end of what people know about Persia in general and Persian involvement in Greece. But that's not really the end of the story. Uh, mm -hmm. So going into the, the classical period, as we've been calling it, do the Greek, what's going on in Greece and how much are they ignoring Persia or how much are the Persians still involved? So Persia's always there, whether actively or in the background of a lot of foreign policy decisions throughout the fifth century BC. As, as we mentioned, the whole entire impetus of the Delian League that the, the Athenians uh, took control of, well, the Spartans did it first. They took control of the 
the defense afterwards until Pausanias got booted out for being a, the arrogant Spartan leader. And anyway, but uh, <laughs> but the uh, Aristides and the Del- uh, and the establishment of the Delian League, and that eventually, and you know, and they're trying to keep the Athenians out of, sorry, and, and they're trying to keep the Persians out of the Aegean and the, uh, that part of the Mediterranean. Um, they there's become this the naval kind of hot slash cold war going on throughout the fifth century it's basically the persians and the greeks are technically at war from i guess you can say 499 to uh was it 449 i believe is when uh there's either an official or unofficial peace um that's established um scholars are generally um or they're generally torn on that um because it brief mentions but we won't go into that anyway so there's like an unofficial piece um and then uh you see for i mentioned earlier 467 the battle of yuri Medon, and then there's kind of like this lull period um there's some fighting near cyprus the, the fighting over the island of cyprus Chimon event that's where he dies at uh in the 450s i believe it is the early 450s uh and then you see this uh in the first, in the 450s you see this outbreak of what's typically called the first peloponnesian war um to distinguish it between the the later peloponnesian war that's more famous um, um the spartans really don't get involved in this one until towards the end it's when the athenians develop their land uh, they conquer a lot of places in central greece and they kind of extend themselves a little bit too far they actually they there's also and you'll, you'll get into this in your podcast there's a there's a revolt in Egypt that the Athenians end up helping out against Persia and they get some of their fleet, uh, fleet destroyed down there. Um, so they fight the, per- the Athenians are fighting the Persians in Egypt in the four fifties. Um, and, uh, as well. So by the time you get to about 449, 447 actually is then. So you have the end of the first Peloponnesian war. There's basically, there's kind of a peace, um, in Greece, that doesn't last very long, but you, uh, they're not fighting the Persians. They're not fighting, uh, the Spartans or Corinthians or Megarians. And there's, uh, and this is when you, Pericles is in control of Athens and 447 is actually, is the, the beginning of the, or is the, the date of the, the Parthenon's establishment. So, and we didn't mention this actually, but like, um, the Persians sacked the, the Acropolis and they sacked quite a bit of uh, temples and other buildings um, throughout Greece. And they, the, the Greeks didn't um, build them back up until the Persian threat was extingu- uh, extinguished. It was kind of this propaganda tool and the Athenians would use the money to, uh, uh, to rebuild their temples, the money from the Delian league slash Athenian empire. Um, be, the Persians, I mean, you'll get into it, but they sacked Athens twice during the Persian Wars, um, left it in ruins, the Acropolis. So, uh, yeah, so you get to the 447s, and I'm, I did a whole series on the breakdown of the piece from 447 to 431. Um, and the uh, Persians are there on the periphery. Um, and so you can tell, like, when you, when you start entering into the war, the Spartans, re- uh, the Spartans begin to start looking towards Persia, as this like potential ally from the very beginning. Um, we have um, instances in Thucydides where there are Spartan envoys or Peloponnesian envoys that get captured on their way to Persia. And the Athenians have uh, 
they develop uh, an alliance with the, the Odorizian Thracians, which are right there on the border uh, of the Persian Empire near the Hellespont in the northern Aegean. And they capture some of their envoys. And the, the, and the Athenians probably are looking towards the, the, uh, the Persians as well. You see in Aristophanes' play later, the Acarnians, that there are ambassadors <laughs> at the Persian court. Um, even though Thucydides doesn't really mention it until a little bit later, it's, there's, it's probably happening too. At the very least, the Athenians don't want the Spartans um, to become allies with the Persians. Uh, and the reason they would want that, uh, the Spartans would want that, is because they didn't have a fleet. They didn't have money to, for the war. They needed, they needed the financial backing. Um, and the, the Persians, but nothing amounts to it until later in the war because, you know, in order for that to happen, uh, the Spartans eventually are going to have to give up control over the Ionians, um, which is what the, the, which is they want tribute from the Ionians. This is the Persians want, that's their entire point of the fifth century. They're still sending out fleets because they're still trying to hope to get control back of that coast. Um, because it's lucrative city tra trade routes, you name it, it's money. Um, so like that's, that's going to be part of any deal, whether the Athenians or the, the Spartans are allies with, with Persia, that's going to be one of the centerpieces. So that's kind of what keeps, uh, what, what drags the feet. So um, the Athenians though, do kind of enter into a non-aggression pact in the late four twenties with Persia when um, oh, the name of the King escapes me. Is it, is it Darius the second? Um, four twenties. It would, that would be it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When he comes to the throne, he has a lot of. Uh, he's not secure, and the Athenians aren't secure at that moment too, because because uh, Brasidas is just is is causing havoc in the north. Um, so they they enter into a non-aggression pact that they're not going to fight. They're not going to like get into each other. So like uh, so like a kind of you know non-aggression pact. They're not going to join the Spartans. That sort of thing. And then the Athenians foolishly kind of do something stupid about a decade later. Um, after this is while the Sicilian expedition was going on, they decide to uh, help uh, Amorgus, who is this son of this uh, Pasthunis, who was a satrap of was it Hellespontine Phrygia or no? He's the satrap of Ionia, where uh, Tissaphernes follows him. Um, so you get these. So the satraps become more integral uh, when you get into the late Peloponnesian War because they kind of enter the political fray as uh, it's less about the king. Obviously they're not going to enter into an alliance with any of the Greek city states without the king signing off. Um, but the satraps, I, th I think you've already gone over satrapies and all that in your podcast, right? Yeah, I believe yeah, so. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so they, uh, so the satraps would be the people that the, the, the Greeks are looking towards their court. Um, so at Sardis, they have control of the Southwestern coast. Um, the Athenian, so Pisthunes, uh, when Darius II comes to, uh, as we mentioned earlier, comes to power, he, Pisthunes takes that opportunity to kind of revolt. Um, and that he, he, which, you know, he holds out for, I forget the exact dates now, but he holds out for quite a long time and then he eventually dies. Uh, and his son, uh, he's eventually captured, and his son then kind of leads the revolt again. And the Athenians foolishly, stupidly, uh, decide to back him. Uh, <laughs> and that kind of, as their, like, disasters are happening in 
um, Sicily and as the Spartans have Decalia in control. So they end up like this third theater of the war. And, and at that point, then you start seeing, uh, so then you have the Sicilian expedition that kind of goes downhill um, really, really disastrously. And then the Spartans are invading the Attic territory from Decalia, which is in the north, northern part of Attica, and they're raiding Athenian territory throughout the war. We're talking about 413 BC now. And then um, now there's hostilities once again with the Persians as uh, the Athenians are, uh, are backing a, a Persian support or a, a revolt. So then the Spartans use this opportunity and they enter into a series of negotiations with Tissaphernes who takes over the satrapy of um, Pisthunes uh, as reward for capturing him. Um, and they enter into a series of negotiations that uh, to, get Spart uh, to get Persian financial money and the like. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but basically it doesn't really amount to anything at first. Uh, the Persians, Tissaphernes kind of tries to play both sides off of each other. Alcibiades has a role in that. Um, eventually, the Spartans get sick of Tissaphernes, and this is kind of where my podcast is right now. So if you want to, uh, listeners can go listen to it for more detail if they want uh, all the political intrigues of the Spartans and uh, Athenians and, uh, and Persians at this, this point in the war. But eventually they get sick of it. Uh, of Tissaphernes' two-facedness, and they, so they move to the northern part, uh, the Hellespontine Phrygia satrap, which is Pharnabasis, um, and they get major support from him. But it isn't until Cyrus uh, takes over, I believe it's 407? I haven't got, got to it yet in the podcast, but it uh, takes over that they really fully invest in helping the Spartans win the war. Um, and then Cyrus would go on to launch a revolt against Artaxerxes II and get defeated and Xenophon's famous Anabasis, the uh, work Anabasis, which I'm sure you'll cover uh, in the podcast too. It's what I'm currently doing my research and writing on for the podcast. Um, but Cyrus really, uh, he has a personal relationship with the Spartan Admiral Lysander and he bankrolls quite a bit of that and basically I don't think it's a stretch to say without Persian support, Sparta would not have been able to beat the Athenians and win the war. Yeah. Does that answer your uh, question? <laughs> yeah. It's no, it's what I find really interesting about that is that it goes so right up to the brink of the reign of Artaxerxes the second. Mm -hmm. uh, you still have Persia intervening in Greek affairs and you have a definite preference for Sparta up to that point, which I think is interesting, uh, just given the uh, seemingly imperial ambitions of Athens. I hesitate to say that Persia would ever have considered any Greek coalition to be uh, a rival in any meaningful way. Um, well, I think Athens it's... Um just to jump in there, I think the, the, the preference for Athens, or for Sparta, ultimately came... Um, at first, it was they wanted. Uh, at first, Tissaphernes and, and wanted to, have, but weaken both sides. So they, so and this kind of came about whether you believe Thucydides or and or not. I, I, tend, I tend to believe him, but this, though he does give a whole, he does tend to put a lot into the actions of Alcibiades. So it could be more so. Anyway, I digress. But like he puts this in the mouth of Alcibiades as telling to Severanis, giving this, him this idea. And he, so he tends to, 
he wants to basically tire the Athenians and Spartans out. And so, so that once the war is over, so once they're done fighting, nobody strong enough is going to be able to uh, deal with the Persians. You know what I mean? Um, so, uh, so they just basically fight each other out. So like he's, he's backing Sparta. If Sparta gets too strong, then he can back Athens, that sort of thing. Um, so, and then he, he can kind of just ensure that one doesn't really thump the other, that they kind of just thump themselves. Um, and that's kind of and that's kind of like how it's looked at until you really get to Lysander and Cyrus, and at that point they have a really deep personal connection. They're very they become very close friends, and you have to think Cy- Cyrus has ambitions of his own. He wants to he wants to be uh, he wants to be the king uh, one day. Uh, it becomes Artaxerxes. Um, he is uh, Darius's uh, Artaxerxes is the eldest son, but Cyrus is the is the um, the son from the queen, like the first son of the queen? I forget her name right now. Um, I don't know. I, I forget it, but it's not important. But so uh, there's precedent with that with Darius. I believe it's Darius, maybe it's Xerxes. But anyway, they um, they he has these ambitions, um, and he thinks so. Like it, it's kind of like. You can think of it this way, like with Lysander, he, it's basically like establishing a Greek, uh, Lysander, who also has a lot of ambitions. It's, it, it's kind of like establishing a Lysander as a satrap on their western border in Greece. So he's never really a threat because they have this such close working relationship together. Um, it, without Lysander, I don't know if the same outcome would have, would have happened, if that, if that makes sense, without that personal relationship. Um, yeah. with, with Cyrus and Lysander. Yeah, well, I think, especially given Cyrus the Younger's failure to mm-hmm. overthrow his brother, it makes what happens next to that story kind of interesting to me because this idea of building up Sparta as a close ally on the Western frontier, I guess, collapses almost mm-hmm. within the generation because Artaxerxes II one of his primary involvements with the Greeks is fighting with Sparta and Mm -hmm. the Spartans invade Persian Anatolia. So really I, we've got, it looks like Greek wars basically right up to that point. I think it's 386 that the last fighting between Persia and Sparta finally ends. Yeah. 386 or 387. I can't remember the King's piece. I forget the year. I think I haven't got that far in the podcast or my research. So <laughs> yeah, neither, like, neither have I we're, at the moment. <laughs> we're both pushing far yeah. ahead. But what I think is interesting is uh, if you're reading a history of the Persian empire, you get through that, you get Egypt back under control. Mm-hmm. And then the next three Kings really are dealing with Macedon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you get to the end of this uh, Persian influenced Spartan versus Athenian battle for hegemony in Greece. Mm -hmm. And in the story of the Persian Empire, it cascades immediately into the buildup to Alexander. Uh, So it kind of seems like the Greek wars don't end. Well, you have this like after, so you have the the, the ten thousand, the Anabasis that we talked about with Xenophon that tried to put uh, Cyrus the Younger on his throne, you, you start seeing this like rhetoric afterwards with like Isocrates and some others that like, oh, look how easy they just went into the, per- the heart of the Persian empire and the Greek mercenaries were able to defeat 
their portion of on the right wing. They're on the right wing. They were able to defeat their portion of the uh, of Artaxerxes' army. It was the rest, the Asian contingents, the Asiatic contingents, and Cyrus that that failed. And you start seeing this rhetoric that it's like. Uh, and, and they were able to go in and then escape. Obviously, they were harassed along the way, but like <laughs> um, um, they were able to get out. Um, and so you start seeing this rhetoric that's like, ah, we could easily get uh, It's the Greeks are superior. The Persians are in decline. The Greeks can easily go in there and steamroll them. Um, I mean, I don't know if that was the case in the beginning of the fifth century or the fourth century, but it was relatively the case when Alexander. Uh, when alexander went uh, and so you start seeing this rhetoric it's like it's 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 more so like we need to conquer persia um we we can we can do that we're, we are uh, are we're superior um that that, that sort of mentality and it, the macedonians phil i believe philip start there uh, they start making plans after the con- conquest of greece then alexander jumps on it and you know the rest is history as it's as they say yeah, I don't. I don't uh, think the Persians were as. Um, well, let me say, I don't think the Persian army was as weak as the re- rhetoric and the propaganda made it seem. Uh, I think if you let, if you had some other generals other than Alexander and or, I mean, even if Philip did it, uh, I, I think if you had someone different, it may not have been the case. I think it was more of a you had some of. It was just the perfect storm. <laughs> Just, just yeah, like yeah. how I think the Greeks were, the Greeks were able to, able to get conquered by the Macedonians because of like the perfect storm. Um, if they were, if they were at the strength they were when the Persians had entered, uh, as opposed to when Philip entered, uh, Persians under you know Dari- uh, Darius or Xerxes, it may have been a different story. But they didn't have the leadership. They didn't have. They were worn out from a decade, uh, from a century of uh, internet nesting warfare, and they were way too reliant upon mercenaries by the time that happened that they just got steamrolled but yeah. that's not the point of this conversation <laughs> uh no i just i think in defense of the persian empire from my side i think the mm-hmm. point to make is that well well yes it was easy for an army of greek mercenaries to penetrate deep into the persian empire they were being led by the crown prince mm-hmm. uh, i feel like that gives them a distinct advantage uh, when it comes to invading a territory, you know, being mm-hmm. led by the guy who rules half of it. Um, but I think since we're right up to Alexander, which is sort of uh, the end of another age for both of our podcasts, um, <laughs> I I think Alexander is actually a great place to loop back around to things that you've covered and things that I'm about to cover. Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe this is just a a myth that I've heard a bunch of times is that Alexander kind of played to his Greek audience and used uh, Xerxes' invasion as his casus belli for invading the Persian Empire when it finally uh, came to his time to invade in the fourth century. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and it was prior to that too. Like there was, they always wanted to get, uh, like the Athenians at least wanted to get revenge on the Acropolis. I don't know if it was a, at least in the sources you, you'd say, I mean, I don't know if that was like the sacking of Persepolis was intended to be retribution or if it was just an accident as it, it, it may seem. And then it became, oh, that was intentional. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, 
but there was always a strong urge to uh, get what's the word I'm trying to think of. There was always a strong urge to um, get revenge uh, for the destruction of the Acropolis uh, on the Persians, uh, which is funny because not funny. That's not the word I want to use, but interesting because like the sack of the Acropolis was um, in a sense, the Persians getting revenge for the Athenians sacking Sardis, which, you know, conveniently is forgotten about in the Athenian mindset that they act, that they were part of setting fire to the Lydian capital during the Ionian revolt, which I don't, I think you're, you've covered that or you're about to cover yeah, that just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting situation. Uh, and so does it, uh, I hadn't, particularly engaged with a, a lot of the sources for Greek and turtle politics uh, between Xerxes and Alexander, really. Uh, but is there really that through line uh, between of suggesting vengeance for the Acropolis? Because I don't the way know. I, I don't Go know ahead. if it's a through line per se. I just I just remember from a few of the, the speeches that I've read that it was mentioned. I can't give you off the top of my head. Um, I, like I said, I haven't been, I'm not that in depth into the fourth century yet. So like, this is just kind of like my recollection of when I did read, uh, like read some of the speeches and propaganda and political stuff. Um, I've read some Isocrates. I, I, I know that I don't think it's as strong of a through line as it would, as you would say, uh, as you, as you would be led to believe in popular culture. Um, I think it's more of a, I think that was more of propaganda after the fact. But don't quote me on that because I'm out of my depth at the moment. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, this is what happens when you get two podcasters talking about something that's just outside of the range of what they've actually covered in the podcast so far. <laughs> see. Uh, that certainly covers all of the thematic and political topics I wanted to to mm-hmm. get your input on and uh, get a Greek perspective, so to speak, for my listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add uh, to our conversation about Greece and Persia? No, I um, um, no, I, I'm just uh, pre- thanks for uh, I'm appreciative of you inviting me on it. Uh, I'm I'm glad you started the podcast because I only covered the Greeks. Or I'm sorry, I only covered the Persians maybe in about four episodes. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, excluding the, the Persian Wars, but I mean, like, the early history of Persia. Uh, so, it's been, it's been interesting to listen to, like, full-on detailed episodes of, like, Persian provinces and Persian, uh, like, cultural stuff, as opposed to I just covered things that you typically would find in Herodotus. Um and or Stesius, um, once he becomes rel- more relevant, I suppose. Um, so yeah, yeah, I have not much more to add. I think I've talked <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you for the compliment too, because uh, obviously Welcome. your podcast was one of the great influences on figuring out how to get mine started. And I certainly want to thank you, whether I include this in the final product or not, for. <laughs> uh, being the great source of promoting the show, especially early on, mm-hmm. because I really do attribute a large portion of my audience to you. 
You're welcome. Uh, yeah, I, I would imagine uh, if people are interested in ancient Greece history, they tend to be uh, interested in ancient Persian history as well, because those two kind of, whether you like it or not, tend to be in the mindsets stuck together, thanks to Herodotus and the sources. Unfortunately, there is no native Persian historical ancient Achaemenid source that all we have is the Greeks. So Persia, Persia stuck with the Greeks for better or worse. Every now and then there's a hint of like some kind of independent tradition that pops up in one of the Roman sources Mm -hmm. where someone like Diodorus or Nicholas of Damascus Mm -hmm. will mention something that nobody else has ever talked about. Mm -hmm. And we think, well, maybe there was some kind of oral tradition or written tradition Mm -hmm. that we've lost, but ultimately Mm -hmm. we're stuck with the Greeks for better or worse. Uh, And it's important to know uh, what their opinions of the Persians were. So thank you for coming Mm -hmm. on and uh, talking to us about that today. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this episode with me and Ryan Stitt. I hope you all found it interesting and informative. I know I certainly did. I will put all of the links to Ryan's podcast and social media down in the episode description. And if you want more information about the History of Persia podcast, you can find me on social media at History of Persia on Twitter and History of Persia podcast on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about the History of Persia podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you can find things like an about page, my bibliography, and the family tree of the Achaemenid royal family, all the way up into the most distant and mythological past. As always with podcasts, the best way to help is to leave a review and help us grow, either by sharing on social media or putting a review on the podcast platform of your choice. The next regular episode will come back in two weeks, and until then, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.